I just figured, figured I would squeeze as many things in as I could before I head out for a few months. <laughs> but playing bass is relaxing. It's not stressful. I love it. Um, John, thanks for leading us this morning. Uh, I like that last song. Your ways are higher. You know just what I need. I trust you, Jesus. Um, I think for most of us, we look at the twists and turns of the path set out before us, and we don't know what is going to come next. And it can be very confusing, but God's path is higher than what we can see. And we need to trust him, because he can see it when we can't. If we had absolute certainty about what the next turn was, we wouldn't need him. I think we still would, because we probably wouldn't be able to handle whatever was around the ter- turn, even if we knew it was coming. Because each one of us, I'm glad you kids are in here, those of you, um, for the summer. Because I think it's important for us to tell our stories, and I think it's important for us to understand and acknowledge that there is something uh, just kind of broken in us where we just don't have what it takes. We can't see what's coming next, and even if we could, when we approached it, we probably wouldn't do the right thing with it. We wouldn't know how to handle it. We need God's help. We need to trust Him. I think the earliest sense for me when I was young, where I was realizing there's something wrong with me, was when I had stolen $26 from my mom, and I've told this story before up here. I wanted candy, and I knew the way to get it was to find her money and her stash, and, and I took it. And um, I remember feeling nauseated after. I remember staying up at night for several days. Because I'd been taught about heaven and hell and God. And, you know, honestly, the, probably the most common thing I had heard in Sunday school was this notion that God rewards the good people and he punishes the bad people. So I better be a good little boy. And uh, if I'm honest, I think the starting path... The starting point for my path of faith really was a fear of hell. It was a fear of punishment. It was a fear that what I did deserved death, and I couldn't see a way out of it. And I, I mean, I, I got to the point where I couldn't really eat because my stomach felt so off. Finally, out of desperation, I confessed my sin to my mom. And she just did, really didn't make a big deal out of it. It was kind of like anticlimactic. Like, oh, well, thanks for telling me. That was about it. It's an interesting experience for me. The reality was at that point, I, I, I wasn't struggling with unbelief. I believed the Bible was true. I believed Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He's the Messiah who comes to save. I believed that if you believe in Jesus, there would come this moment where salvation would happen. But I had it kind of backwards because I think I had absorbed the typical religious approach when anybody looks at religion, Christianity being one of many, I think the most often perception is you obey, you do the rituals, you do the things to make you clean, and then you're righteous. But it's backwards. It's backwards. So the gospel, according to young Travis, looked kind of like this. Believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, check, I got that. Then try really hard to obey God's law and be righteous. Because that's what everybody told me in Sunday school. If you've watched Veggie Tales, that's probably what it told you too. Don't lie. Don't hit your sister. 
Got that one. I have an older sister. It's easy to hit her. It's bad. And then if you do a good job, you'll be accepted by God. And I was left in a constant state of looking over my shoulder, wondering if God was going to smite me. Because I couldn't get my act together. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. And everybody else around me at church seemed like they had the sacred thing down. But I kept getting yelled at by this older woman named Joyce, because you're not supposed to run in the sacred space that is the sanctuary, apparently. And I did. And I got yelled at a lot by people telling me I wasn't behaving and I needed to behave so God would reward me. In case you're wondering, here's the actual gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ. You're immediately and irreversibly righteous. This is your standing before God as soon as you believe. Gratitude and joy then motivate you to obey. I had it backwards. Which one are you, functionally speaking? Maybe you you have this in your head, but functionally, like, how does it play out? In your mind, are you saying, if I obey, then I'll be accepted by God, but I'm assuming that since I haven't, he's probably angry with me right now? Or, are you saying, because I'm fully accepted by God, therefore my heart is full with gratitude, with joy, with peace, with patience, with self-control. All of these things are flooding into my life because of my status before the God of the universe, who's the only one whose opinion actually matters. And then therefore, I want to be like him. So I'll learn about what he says and obey. So at this point in my life, when I was young, my path basically was looking over my shoulder, wondering if God was happy or if he was out to get me because I screwed up. What's your path like? The Christian life is referred to multiple times in the Bible as a path or a road or a journey with a start and a destination. Um, it's an important one, and it's important to stay on that path. We don't want to get it wrong. In Matthew 7, Jesus called that path the hard one. He used the word straight, which actually is not straight like straight as an arrow. That's not the literal Greek. The literal Greek is between obstacles, like a straight like the Strait of Gibraltar. It's narrow. It's kind of hard. And he says there's a wider one that seems easier. It's a path that Proverbs 16.25 says there's a way that seems right, but it leads to death. So there's a right path and there's a wrong path. And on that path, there's a lot of twists and turns and obstacles and things we bump up against. And oftentimes those obstacles are ourselves. If I'm honest, this is what I want my path to look like. I took this picture and posted it on Instagram because if you didn't post it on Instagram, it didn't happen, apparently. This is uh, north of Winnemucca, Nevada, and we had to gas up because you get to a sign which says, if you're not gassed up right now, turn back and fill up your tank because there's 300 some miles with no gas station. And I just had to get out because there were no cars for like ever, and I got out and just took a picture because... It was amazing. I just, you just go. There's a straight, free, open, hundreds of miles from anywhere with no traffic, and there's no twists and turns or obstacles, things that get in your way, things that you bump up against. But life usually is a little more twisty and turny. So speaking of twists and turns, Aaron mentioned you guys are coming up into VBS this next week. Who here is actually going to be involved in that this week in any capacity at all? Man, look, so many people. It's awesome. People are going to be just in backyards. 
Um, the theme for this year is, is games. It's board games. Like, picture the game of Candyland and all the twists and paths. There's a start and a finish, but you can slide back. You can keep going, and then there's ladders that jump you ahead. And it is kind of a little bit like the Christian life, I think. But following Jesus in the midst of that changes everything. That's the theme. I like that theme. I decided to make it part of my message today. And I think it'll be part of the message next week. Um, because all of us, you guys, you've been entrusted with the greatest message there is, the message of the gospel. And if you understand that as you journey through this life, whatever comes your way, it's going to change everything for you. You may not see the next step, but you can trust that God does, and in the end, everything will work out. And you guys have been entrusted with that message to share that to people who maybe have never heard it this week. And I just want to encourage you guys, go out with boldness. This is the best news that can possibly be shared. And you'll plant a seed. God can do the rest. Do that this week. It's going to be amazing, in my opinion. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Believe that as you go out into this week. The main Bible character you guys are going to be talking about all week is Peter. He's one of my favorites just because he's so up and down. His path is just twisty and turny. You know, you see him, I think the first week is going to just talk about him getting called and following Jesus. And then uh, he's going to walk on water and you see his faith falter. And then he actually denies that he even knows Christ. He, he sins and then he's, he's restored. It's a path that a lot of us are actually pretty familiar with in our own lives. And then there's this moment where he sees the truth and he sees the resurrection and he starts to speak boldly in the presence of all the people in public. What would change him to do that? And then the last day, you guys are going to talk about how the gospel, he receives this vision and this message from God. The gospel isn't just for the Jews. It's for everyone. It's for the whole world. It's for you. I love Peter. So I wanted, we're going to talk about the, the parting of the Red Sea today, actually. But I wanted to go to Galatians 2 and talk about Peter today. Because I think there is a, a twist there where he didn't see something coming in his own story. And it's after all the things that you guys are going to talk about at VBS this week. It's a little later in his life. Because for a moment, he forgets this good news. And the, he forgets the gospel. And he forgets who he is. And it will relate to Exodus and the Israelites. We'll get there. Let me just pray. And then we'll go to Galatians chapter 2. Well, God, we, uh, we thank you for the rain today. Thank you for the, um, hopefully, the swelling of the Colorado River as it uh, has to go and give life to many, many people downstream. We're grateful that you can make it rain. We're reminded of your sovereignty today, your control over everything that you have made. God, you are in absolute control today. We believe that. It's raining for a reason. And uh, I just appreciated that powerful sound on my roof as I woke up this morning. There's nothing I could do to change it. All I can do is put an umbrella up and walk out in it. Thank you for that reminder. God, help us as we open up the text today. Help us as we consider the implications of what you did at the Red Sea. Help us as we consider what Peter was wrestling with in his works in the law and grace. Help us to see the gospel clearly today, God. And Holy, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd inhabit me. Just pray that you would just not let words come out that aren't of you today. I pray for something to change all of us. We believe that you're here and you're present and your presence goes with us and we just lean into that together this morning. In Jesus' name I pray.
So in Galatians 2, if you read the book of Galatians, basically the synopsis is there's this group of Jewish teachers who have come into the Galatian church. They did accept, like I did as a kid, that Jesus was the Messiah. They accepted that. They saw he is the Son of God. I get that. I believe that. They didn't reject faith in Jesus, but they said you also have to obey the works of the law. In particular, you need to obey the dietary laws, the circumcision laws, things like that. You have to do all of what's called the Mosaic Law, which is what we're in the middle of studying right now. Um, You have to do that. So you believe in Jesus, but you also have to obey if you want to be saved. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Galatia basically with some of his strongest words that he has in the entire Bible. And he's saying, that's backwards. It's wrong. You're off. Okay? He goes so far as to say in Galatians 3, O foolish Galatians who has bewitched you, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's pretty strong. Are you so foolish? Have you ever confronted someone and said, you are an idiot? That's basically what he's saying. That's the literal here. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? (laughs) Uh, I love how strong he is. So, in in chapter 2, he kind of starts telling a story in verse 11, where he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, this is, Cephas is, uh, is Peter. Cephas is Peter, and Cephas has apparently been influenced by this group of Jewish teachers who are uh, influencing the church in Galatia. And he says, when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles then, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And so the, the circumcision party is this group of teachers that I was referring to. Jesus plus the works of the law equals salvation, right? That's basically the synopsis. And Paul's saying, no, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Don't do that. That's, that's foolish. And then he says, even Peter fell into it. And I think that as I want to highlight these roads that we're on, the journey of our lives, I mean, at this point, I would consider Peter like, this is, this is advanced guy. This is like seasoned believer, He's probably got more knowledge of Jesus personally than any one of us would ever even dream to have. And yet he still falls into this trap where he forgets what the gospel has bought him. And then how that relates to him relating to other people. So Peter was Jewish. For centuries, the Jewish people, they had abided by this law. Don't touch this. Don't eat that. There's lots of things. You know, they're unclean for so many different reasons. It's exhausting. If you touch mildew or a dead body, like you can't go into worship after that. You're ceremonially unclean. You had to go through this whole sacrificial system where there's blood and there's, it's just, it's, it's this thing that they're steeped in. And so they worked incredibly hard to stay clean, but the Gentiles around them, that's people of all the other races other than the Jews, didn't. They ate things that were unclean. They touched things that made them unclean. And so it was really easy at the time for the Jews like Peter to think, we're clean, we're good, we're righteous, we're holy, and they aren't. So there's even like a superiority complex that they're falling into, that he's falling into, that we need to understand. I think verse 14 is kind of critical here. 
So here's Paul's critique. He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. You've hit a bump in the road, and it's going to stop you. You can't go forward until you get this right. What does the gospel say right now? I think the implication here is Peter forgot who he was. He forgot what God had saved him into. And he forgot who these supposedly unclean Gentile brothers and sisters were and what the gospel had saved them into. And he was making a distinction between himself and them. So, that's kind of our, like, setup. Let's go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter. Let's start in 13. We were going to start in 14, but... I was looking at this yesterday, and I thought, we should start in 13, because there's a little bit of a prelude. The Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, we've all heard it, probably. If you're not familiar with it, it's in Exodus 14, and it's pretty amazing. It's one of the most significant events in the history of the nation of Israel. It's so worthy of celebration, they have all kinds of things set up to remember it. They're so familiar with it, all you have to say is the sea, and they understand. There's like the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, and there's all kinds of other seas. But when you say the sea, they, they know you're talking about the Red Sea because this is the most momentous occasion. It's referenced multiple times, like 20-some times in the Old Testament. It's alluded to in the New Testament. And it's, it's significant not just in that it was a great event that highlighted God's power, but symbolically it connects the Old Testament and the New Testament in a very unique way. And it's no surprise how important it was. You know, when Stephen in Acts 7 is giving a speech in front of the Sanhedrin, he mentions the Red Sea, he mentions it by name, and he mentions what God did there. It's pretty, pretty remarkable. Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 10. He talks about the Israelites coming out of Egypt and going through the waters, and he, he kind of makes this analogy. It's like our New Testament baptism, like where we're buried with Christ, we go through these waters and it's symbolic of us becoming a new creation in Christ and he makes this super special connection to the New Testament Christians from their history in the past. And the people who went through the Red Sea would maybe never have made that connection, but we have the scripture and we have the cross and we have the life of Jesus and we can look at it and we go, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, these things are written as examples for us, us meaning Christians. And so we take this story seriously. The New Testament references the Exodus multiple times. There's multiple instances um, like in Matthew, where in the very beginning he says about Jesus, out of Egypt I have called my son, fulfilling this prophecy, where Hosea 11, there's this reference to the Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 4, God is referring to the Israelites as his firstborn son, or, you know, he's going to call them out. And, he's, and then ultimately that is like a prophecy, and it's Jesus, and it's fulfilled in him. And Matthew's calling that out. And he's, it's like a totally different connection, but it's so fresh and so alive, and it's connected to this event of the Red Sea crossing. And you can go to Hebrews. You can go to Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 where the author of Hebrews is talking about Moses and he says Moses, Moses is this type that points to Jesus and when you study Moses you can understand Jesus better and when you see Jesus you see what God did through Moses and you understand the gospel better and then in Hebrews 11 uh, verse 29 it says that the Israelites 
by faith passed through the sea, but the Egyptians couldn't do it because the, they didn't have enough faith and they were drowned. And Hebrews 11 is in the context of modern-day Christians, so it's giving them as an example for us to learn from and follow from as a paradigm for Christian faith. And so it's really, really, really relevant. There's a book um, that was published uh, somewhere mid, probably like 2015, 2016, Alec uh, Matier, he's a British theologian, and Tim Keller wrote the, uh, the foreword for the book. And in that foreword, he says that he was in this room with Alec Matier, like just a long time ago. And he said that he was asked a question about the relationship of the Old Testament Israel to the church. And Alec, he responded, he said, you know what, imagine, imagine how an Israelite, if you could just grab them in the desert there as they're prior to going into the promised land, give their testimony, what it would sound like. And he said, it would have sounded something like this. We were in a foreign land in bondage, under the sentence of death. But our mediator, mediator, New Testament speaks of Moses as a mediator here. Our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. We learned about that last week. And he led us out. Moses led them out. Now we're on the way to the promised land. We're not there yet, of course. But we have the law to guide us, and through blood sacrifice, we also have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. And he concluded, now think about it. A Christian today could say the exact same thing almost word for word. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. And so Tim Keller says up until that time, he had this impression that Old Testament people were saved through obeying a list of detailed laws and doing all these works. And that the New Testament... People were freely forgiven and accepted by faith, but this thought experiment showed him all in an instant that not only that the Israelites had been saved by grace, but that God's salvation had been costly atonement and grace all the time. And that this whole journey that we're on, this path that we're on, this pilgrimage that we are on, in our pursuit of holiness, in our pursuit of heaven, in our pursuit of obedience, in the context of deep community, it characterized the Israelites, and it should characterize us as well. So I said we'll start in Exodus 13. Let's start in verse 17. If you turn in your Bibles, if you are looking for that in the House Bibles toward the beginning, page 55. Get a drink of water real quick, and we'll dive in. So as we're considering the theme of our vacation Bible school this year, I'm considering what my next two months will look like as I head out on sabbatical. I don't know the path. You don't know what this week is going to look like. In fact, why don't we just right here before we dive into this, let's, can we just take a quick detour, a twist, and a turn? Um, would you just turn to the person next to you? And maybe, I, I just was looking at the weather forecast for this week. Tomorrow morning is going to be pretty soggy. We've got people in backyards. Could we just pray together as a church that God would part the waters? miraculously and stop the rain for the morning and maybe dry up some backyards and uh, that that would continue throughout the week in the mornings. Just take a moment.
And God, I do agree. I pray that you would stop the rain. I pray that you would dry up the backyards. God, you know uh, what paths we will take. We know, you know what twists are in the road, and you know what we'll be able to handle this week um, as your church seeks to spread your gospel message, and we just ask that you would um, produce miracles this week. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, so remember the people have been enslaved for over 400 years in Egypt under Pharaoh. He let the people go. There's a sequence of God doing miraculous intervention, and finally Pharaoh relents. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. It's like a, it's a shorter route on the path. So they're taking this path, and eventually it's going to get real windy as they go through the wilderness. But right now, there seems to be a clear, easy path into the land of the Philistines. It says, although that was near, God decided to lead them somewhere else. For God said, and here's where a key passage is for us, as you're anticipating the next turn. Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. He saw what was coming. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. So they look like they're ready to fight. They're equipped for battle. But God's looking at the situation. He goes, there's an enemy there, so I'm going to take them a different way. I have a different plan. And they trusted him, and they went. Okay, so let's turn to Exodus 14. All right, so Pharaoh realizes they're kind of wandering. They've left. Starting in verse 5, when king of Egypt told, was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this that we've done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. It took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped by the sea. So there's a plot twist. They had what looked like kind of a straight, easy road path ahead of them. The twist and turn was God said, you're going to be not equipped for the battle that you would face on that easy one. So I'm going to take you the harder route and encamps them up against the Red Sea. And suddenly Pharaoh shows up and he wants them back. And they're pinned. And it does not look like a good twist. Apparently they weren't all that ready. So they freak out. When Pharaoh drew near, verse 10, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. <laughs> this is just crazy to me what they say after having gone through the plagues and seeing God's miracles. They said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is, it, is, is not what we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, is that really what they said to him? No. If you go back to Exodus 4... You can see what they really said. It said, And Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and told them everything the Lord had said and performed the signs before the people, and they believed. 
And they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery. They bowed down in worship. So here they've completely flipped their, even their story about what just happened. Not only are they not believing in God, they're flipping, flipping their whole story. Like, we, we anticipated this. We saw this. This is what's going to happen. In Psalm 106, verse 7, the psalmist says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. This is the moment. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. And I think this is a picture of us. This certainly was a picture of me as a young kid where I believed in Jesus. I had accepted it, but it hadn't sunk in. And I was still trying to save myself by works. They're camped up against the sea. And Pharaoh says, I've let them go. They're free. Functionally, they're free. Objectively, they're free. They have been freed from slavery. You have been freed from sin if you've accepted Jesus Christ. Getting the metaphor? But your old master, sin, as Paul writes in Romans 7, still dwells in you, and you're fighting it. Their old master, Pharaoh, is coming up behind them and wants them back. Your old master, what is it? Success? Sex? Pleasure? What have you been delivered from that there is no consequence for you in currently where you have the righteousness of Christ when he looks at you and yet you keep going back to it? Are you like the Israelites saying, "Ah, I just wish I could go back to that? It's probably going to kill me anyway and I don't see a deliverance going forward. And that was me nauseated, realizing how much I had sinned and what I deserved, falling back into what I had been saved out of. They're a picture of us. They were enslaved and let go. You are not a slave to your sin, but you're still feeling the weight on your shoulders because it's asking for you back. You were under that guilt and condemnation, but Jesus has let you go. He got you out of it but it's pursuing you. Pharaoh's officially freed them, but now he wants them back. So they're free inside, sort of, but maybe they don't feel it. The Galatians are falling into the same trap with the apostle Peter. And in that example, where Peter's in Antioch and the Judaizers and the circumcision party and all that's happening, they're free from guilt. They believe in Jesus. They believe he's the son of God. They believe he's the Messiah but they're going backwards into the old system of slavery and bondage. That is works righteousness. Are you stuck in that camp? Have you felt that? I think it's very possible for all of us in this room to live in such a way that that guilt is removed and we know it, and yet we don't know it. You're freed from the old covenant, you're freed from the consequences of the law, and yet you are a slave to that nature. Something in your life is mastering you. Maybe it's not an explicit sin, but you're stuck in idolatry. Maybe your idolatry is comfort, it's profession, it's ease of life, it's that vacation that you're dreaming of, it's uh, getting out from under your mortgage. You're stuck. You've been given new life, and yet you still have the mindset of a slave. You should be free, but you know it just in your head, and you don't know it in your heart. That like Paul said in Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ 
Jesus. So the Red Sea, just t- it tells us something about this. This happens by grace, unmerited grace. Uh, verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. We see the salvation of the Lord. Oh, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. That's pretty clear. Be silent. Stand still. God's going to do your fighting. You can't do it. You can't perform. You can't contribute to it. You can't save yourself. There is no work that you can do to get out from underneath this slavery. God has to do all of it. It reminds me of this. Romans 4, verse 5. To the one who does not work. Reminds me of being still and being silent. But believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's standing still. Receive your salvation, not by your work, but by Christ's. Receive your righteousness, not by your ability to follow the rules, but by Christ's ability to be perfect. You believe, you're saved, then you obey. Not the other way around. And when you understand that, it changes everything. In Galatians 2, I lost my place. There it is. Verse 20, Paul says, as he's confronting the Galatian church, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What does that mean? In other places, he says, I've been raised with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. I've been raised with Christ. When you become a Christian, the moment you believe, you cross over from death to life. The moment you believe, you're united with Christ in his death and resurrection. It means, in a sense, you have died on the cross. God treats you as free. Free from the penalty. As free as if you had paid for all of those sins with your own life. By dying. And on the other hand, you're also raised with Christ, which means God is honoring you in the exact same way that he honors Jesus with his righteousness. So all of the things that Jesus has done, you're getting the same commendation, the same honor, the same glory. That's what the Bible says. You have the righteousness of Christ. So the moment you believe your sins are put on Jesus, his righteousness is put on you, he's treated as if he had done everything you had done, and you're treated as if you had done everything that he has done, all the things that he deserves you now get. So that's my question is, which order are you living in? Are you working or are you standing still and waiting for God's salvation? Because you can't contribute to it. I don't know, kids, have you guys been paying attention? Yeah? (laughs) So one of the things that we're going to do over the summer is, for those of you kids that would normally be in kids' ministry right now, we want to make this interesting for you, so we're going to test you every week in some way to make sure you're paying attention. So I'd like to do that right now. But I need a volunteer who's actually willing to come up on stage. Anybody willing to come up on stage? There's a prize involved. We've got one, Mr. Fisher, come on up. Okay, so I have a few works for you to do, and we'll see if you deserve the prize. So I'm going to give you a microphone. 
which should be on. Yes, Dawson, get the microphone on. All right, you can hold that. Okay, so on the screen up here, I'm going to have a quiz for you. And you have to get all the questions right in order to deserve the prize. Okay. Okay, do you think you can do that? Maybe. Maybe. Okay, so <clears throat> question number one, which woman sat on the throne of Judah? <laughs> there was only one, and it was for a, br a brief time. Don't remember. Athalia. What did the spirit use to pick up Ezekiel in order to dangle him over Jerusalem? His hair. Oh, right. God does weird things sometimes. Okay, this one. What is the literal meaning of the name of the only woman in the Bible who is named as having leprosy? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I feel like these are trick questions. No, he's too smart for me. <laughs> the next one is the trick question. This one actually does have an answer. This is Miriam. So she's Moses' sister, and she had leprosy at one point. Um, and the literal meaning of her name is rebellion. Okay, last one. What did the Urim and Thummim look like? I don't Bible know. trivia. I can't pronounce either of those words. Oh, no prize for you. You don't deserve it. Just kidding. Just kidding. That actually is very similar to us trying to work for our salvation. It's just not possible. Even that last one, there is no actual description of what those things look like. They're kind of mysterious. They're weird. I don't know. It wouldn't have been possible for you to win either way, no matter how hard you tried. Just like us, as we're trying to get to heaven and be righteous. You can't do it. How about this? Let's, tr let's try a different question. Whose blood can save us? Jesus. Oh! I'll count that to you as right. Does that sound good? All right. I'm going to have you go back to where the soundboard is in the tech booth there. See Mr. Chris there? He's got a game for you. You guys are going to love this. Mousetrap. You guys ever play that game? <laughs> Mr. Fisher, thank you. Great participating. I love that picture, though. You can't work your way across the Red Sea. Religions of the world and most of, pe most of people who actually approach Christianity... If they found themselves in their belief system, maybe it's your belief system, up against the Red Sea, Pharaoh coming at them, certain death, they start building a bridge. And that's what it feels like when you're following a religious system rather than Christ. You'll bump up against what did the Urim and Thummim look like in some sort of obstacle in your path, and it'll be impossible. Maybe you won't build a bridge, you'll start swimming to your death. That is what all the religions of the world have in common. And I love this example in the Red Sea because they have to get across the Red Sea by grace and grace alone. Here they're within reach of their old masters, their old slavery. They're under the sentence of death. Pharaoh says, we're going to go get them. So they feel like they're still under that sentence of death. But then something happens. So let's keep reading. So they says, better, da-da-da-da-da. He says, the Lord will fight for you. 
you only have to be silent. The Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? <laughs> why are you yelling? I don't even know that Moses was yelling. I think it was the people that were yelling. But Moses is so associated with the people here. Remember, he's the go-between. He's the mediator between them and God. God says, you're yelling too. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. So God had guided them to the shore. God had guided them there. And then the enemy is behind them. And so God comes around on their flank and protects them from behind while he orchestrates this moment for what's ahead of them. I love this. It's so cool. It's so cool. And, the, and, and then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, verse 21, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I always thought when I was a kid it'd be really interesting to see, it, does that look like when you're at an aquarium and you're looking through glass and you can see all the fish swimming around? Like, is that what that wall looked like? Or is it just like swirling in the wind? If I approached it, you know, you're approaching like probably miles and miles of crossing. So you've got this towering just thing of water, just force on either side of you as you're walking. Maybe you're running through, escaping Pharaoh. And I thought as I was a kid, it would be really fun because I'd probably be on my dad's shoulders. And I don't know how narrow it was, but maybe I could stick both hands out and like have both of them in each wall of water. I don't know. It's just fascinating to like think about that. I'm sure some people going across were like, yeah, look what God is doing, like strong faith. And then others, they're like, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm scared. I can't do this. I, I can't go forward. But they're just compelled to go forward. And it's so cool. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord and the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the, the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his service. Servant Moses. Wow. Wow. So whether they had big faith or little faith, it didn't matter. They crossed from certain death to absolute life with the enemy completely destroyed. Every other religion is building a bridge across that water and working so hard and yet never ever arriving and the enemy overtakes you. 
Christianity has you arrive all at once upon belief. It's done, it's over with. One minute you're in death, the next minute you are in life. One minute you're not part of the family, the next minute you are in the family, and not just in the family, you are an heir to the throne with an inheritance and a glory that will last forever. There is no space between death and life for the Christian. You are one or the other, and yet Peter forgot that, and tried to sit in the middle of that space. When he had heard Jesus say this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So as you encounter the twists and turns on your path, you might encounter a moment that looks like this. Your path might get bumpy. I think Peter bumped up against a moment that looked more like this as he forgot his salvation and forgot the gospel. There's a boulder in his path. And Paul had to get into his face and say, you're not in line with the gospel. And he said this, to the Galatian churches, he's pulling all of this out. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to watch Jesus part the waters and cross over from death to life. I just love that it tells us the waters were divided. The Israelites went through on dry ground. There's a wall of water on their left, on their right. And they went through with different attitudes. We know that. That's got to be the case. You've got the fearful one. You've got the confident one. But they're not saved because of the quality of their faith. They're saved because of who they're looking at. The object of their faith is God. And the quality of God is what saves them. God who is fighting for them. And all he asked them to do was be still. And let him do that work. And it's like Paul concluded in that section in Galatians where he's confronting Peter and the Galatian church. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Meaning, I just need to be still and let him animate me, live in me, move my limbs, move my mouth, direct my thoughts. When you become a Christian, the moment you believe you're united with Christ in his death and resurrection. I no longer live. It's kind of like this interesting paradox because you become a Christian, you go into Christ and it's like your life disappears into him. But in a certain sense, you do kind of disappear but, and you find your value in Christ but there's another sense in which now the life you live in the body as, as Paul referred to multiple times, it's, it's like this life that is, is really you. It's like the true you. And it's the life that actually can do the things that God is asking you to do. Not perfectly, not till we get to heaven. But it's like I experienced when I was a kid. I never knew that I was being good enough. I never knew if I could actually act right. I never had confidence. I just had nausea and anxiety and sadness and depression and low energy. I couldn't even eat. And I feel like a lot of us probably are in that kind of space mentally. 
My path took a major twist when I realized, and it was later, it was by high school when I finally started understanding this and grasping it, that my salvation was by grace and not by work, that I was righteous in God's eyes. I started operating out of the joy and fullness of that, the energy that comes from that, the confidence that comes from that, the kind of confidence that can take a sinner like the Apostle Paul who had killed Christians and turn him to the point where he says, there's no condemnation for me. And have boldness. Not, oh, I guess I better do a bunch of penance until I'm worthy. You didn't see that out of his life. There's a huge difference, and it changes you. This kind of reality where you're no longer thinking of yourself as a slave, but you're thinking of yourself as the righteousness of God has major implications for your life. If you're in politics, it changes how you think about your city or the place that you're governing. It changes how you conduct your career. Everything's been accomplished for you, so you're free to just throw all the energy at it. You can love because you're not expecting that love to have a monetary return. You can work hard. It affects your family relationships. It lightens the burden. It affects your sexuality, your attitude towards the poor, to the needy. It's like the difference between reading a book for fun and reading the book for a test. It's like the difference between seeing a need and giving out of the generosity and joy and gladness in your heart versus paying taxes because you're forced to take care of somebody. It radically should change everything about your view of the world and how you operate. And it'll fill you with joy and it'll fill you with energy because you are standing on the shore of the Red Sea. The waters are back down and they're still and the Egyptian army, your old master, Sin, is dead and can't touch you. Exodus 15 is a song of praise. Do you have a song of praise that just flows out of you because you've seen what God has done? Band, you guys can come on back up. I'll join you in a minute. <laughs> What we're going to do, we're actually going to take communion together as we sing this song. I think something that's vital to see in a story like this and as we process what Christ has done for us and what his blood has bought for us, you know, symbol, uh, uh, communion is a symbol because we are prone to forget. We're prone to forget like Peter did. Peter came back around, and I, I wonder just how many instances like that there are in our lives. You know, you're not too far gone. You might stumble into this, you can come back around, and it might come back around, and it's kind of a continual fight to believe, I'm righteous, I'm righteous before God. And so one of the reasons why we take communion, and we, we take the bread, and we take the wine, like Jesus commanded us, is so that we can remember the accomplished work that he did for us, that bread that symbolizes his body. Put on the cross instead of your body. The blood that poured out of him. Instead of your blood pouring out in the punishment for your sins, his blood pours out in the punishment for your sins as he's being punished and you are being cleansed. You die and are resurrected with his death and resurrection. That's what this reminds us of. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. We're on the other side of the Red Sea on dry ground looking at the water and it's still and the enemy is defeated. That's what this reminds us of. I love that. I've been saved by free grace, and now I'm freed 
to want to obey God. Like Leviticus 11.45, God says, I brought you out of Egypt, saved you. Therefore, be holy. You know that word salvation? In uh, verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. That word salvation in Hebrew is Yahweh. See the Yahweh of the Lord. I don't think it's a coincidence that when Jesus came around in the New Testament, his name was Yahweh. Salvation. The one who saves. So let's just look at Jesus together as we sing and as we take communion together. Let's look at him and be still. Let's see his finished work. Let's realize that all of our salvation, our deliverance is in him and not us. Realize we have nothing to contribute. And as we look at him, let it make us holy, set apart. And actually, if you're not a Christian right now, just doing that will make you a Christian. Let that sink in. And let's sing about Christ, the rock. Let me just pray real quick, and then we'll sing. Jesus, I think what I want to pray right now is I head into two months of sabbatical and I'm assuming you're going to work on my heart in ways that I cannot foresee and I don't know the twists and turns. I thought at the beginning of this when I was writing down goals for this time that I was praying for clarity. I think what I'd rather do is just pray, God, that I trust you because I can't see the path, but you can see it. And you have a plan for it. Just like you turned the Israelites towards the Red Sea with a plan. You can turn each one of us towards something with a plan. Let us trust that the work has been completed for us. Make us holy. I pray, God, that Fort Collins would be transformed by the joy and energy that can come out of your people when we finally realize we've been saved. Let that sink into our hearts. I pray. Amen.